Welcome to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. If you're an athlete, coach, or sports fan driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our free monthly magazine at faithdrivenathlete.org. We'll compile the best videos, articles, and resources written by athletes across the country and bring them to you once a month. This podcast, of course, doesn't exist without you, our community. So while you're on the site, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you and any questions that you might have for our guests. If someone wants a, a number 30 jersey, who you want to like Steph or a number 40 for HB or, you know, you can go through all these numbers, but the guys have numbers. Guys in prison have numbers. For the athletes that we work with, if you are so focused on who they are as athletes and their star power, I believe you failed to adequately present the gospel and they need it as much as anyone. They need, whether they're football players, basketball players, or baseball players, and I've done all three sports professionally, I can tell you that there's no difference in a man who needs the Lord. There's no difference in a man who comes to grips with the reality that whether I have nothing or I have a lot, absent Christ, you're still empty. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. Earl Smith is the chaplain for the San Francisco 49ers and the Golden State Warriors. But his journey to arrive there is nothing like you've ever heard before. After being shot six times in a gang-related attack, Earl somehow survived, but then found himself in San Quentin Prison, not as a prisoner, but as a chaplain and standing on the other side of the bars of the man who shot him. He'll tell you the powerful story of obedience forgiveness, and how that shaped him on his journey of ministering to guys like Steph Curry and others along the way. It's an incredible story that you just don't want to miss. Henry? Welcome back to the Faith Driven Athlete special edition. Earl Smith in the house. This is a big deal for me. Yeah, I've got to acknowledge the fact that many of our listeners are not Golden State Warriors fans, as cool as I think the team is. There are going to be some of you that do not think that. Part of that comes from the fact we moved our family out here five years ago. Perfect time to jump on a bandwagon, I know. But there's some really neat faith-driven athletes on that team. That's a real encouragement to me as a dad with three impressionable boys who are now 14, 16, and 18. Of course, five years ago, they were five years less than that. And really neat for them to be able to look up to folks like Steph Curry. And so today, we have Earl Smith on the program, who's got a great story of his own. I want to start off with Golden State Warriors. Talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be a chaplain on that team. What did the face of those players look like? First of all, I've done the Warrior, I've been a chaplain with the Warriors for 34 years and have a sister by the name of Walter Hoy. And we recently decided to switch positions. So Walter's going to be the lead, I'm going to be his assistant. And we did that based on, I just felt like it was God's timing to move on. But to answer your question about players or athletes and what it looks like to be around the Warriors, I think you have to look at it as a group of young men that have similar ideas and goals, and the center of that is their Christ relationship. And when they get in the room for chapel, that's important to them. That's the thing they want to discuss. We don't talk about basketball. I don't know anything about basketball, really. I'm not a basketball fan. So I'd be the wrong person even to try to tell them something about basketball. But we talk about life. We talk about mm-hmm. the things that they may be encountering or going through. And we discuss it in such a way with a scriptural basis. So we do a handout and it's just looking at those young guys and 
you know, we've lost some to other teams and we get new guys in and it's always just really interesting to see what happens when the new kids come in. How will they become a part of this? And if the culture is strong, then they'll follow suit with the culture. And that's what I believe that has made the Warriors so great is that they've set a culture from the top down. I mean, the general manager, Bob Myers, when he was assistant GM, he was coming to chapel. GM, he's there. So it's not like he doesn't understand the value of a relationship and the players understand that. I believe that has a great emphasis also. It sort of trickles down. You talk about some of the players that have left. I, I know that there's a faith story behind Harrison Barnes and, and James Michael McAdoo, and that's maybe because I'm a Carolina fan too. But do you find that as you get to know some of these players in their lives, that you stay in touch with any of them, that they come back to you and, and, and let you know how they're doing? I went to Dallas and did a chapel with HB when he was still with the Mavericks. Uh, I mean, over the years, what you do is you don't develop relationship based on basketball. You develop relationship based on who the individual may be that it just so happens they play the game of basketball. And as, as long as you remember that's the basis for the relationship, then even when they finish playing, you'll still have the relationship. Let's take it to the beginning. Tell us about your life growing up. You grew up in Stockton, California. And you had kind of a rough background, you know, before you were called to be a chaplain, you were shot six times, but survived. How did that happen? Uh, gang member, drug dealer. I was uh, adverse to doing anything that people consider positive. In my particular case, I believe I was being positive because I was a leader. I've always been a leader, just was leading in the wrong way. And I tell people this also. If you're seriously into something, it's almost like a guy says he was a member of the 49er. I'm a 49er. I played one year with him, but I'm a 49er. Same with gangs. With me, I got into something very early in my life, and it took me down that path where I ended up getting shot six times. I believe, and I tell people, especially kids, the best thing that happened was me being shot because it gave me an opportunity to process what was really important to me. And what I thought, when I thought the gangs, the drugs, the violence was important, those things weren't important. So walk us through how that experiencing growing up, leading in the wrong way, getting shot, ending up in a hospital, transition that to how you ended up entering a life of ministry. Well, get arrested when you're eight years old or picked up for stabbing someone and everyone thinks you're crazy and all the prophets in the neighborhood, the old people say, you're going to end up in San Quentin, you're doomed, you know, and they were prophets. They said I was going to end up in San Quentin, and that was the worst place that anyone could ever end up. San Quentin used to have the executions on the radio, so people would listen to them. So San Quentin oh was the place, when you heard that name, you thought, okay, that's where they kill people. For me, it was a lot of anger growing up. For me, it was a lot of mistrust, feelings of abandonment, loneliness, and I connected with something that I thought made me feel apart. What I connected with ended up making me a part, but also a leader. And I led a lot of people in the wrong direction as a result of wanting to be a part. When I got shot, I was 19 years old. And I remember the police asking me to tell them who did it. And the doctor looking at me and I'm like, they didn't understand you don't tell. And 
My father came in and he grabbed my hand and he tells the doctor how bad is it? The doctor says he's going to die. And I watched my dad grab that guy and says, you better do what you do best and I'm going to do what I do best. And my dad went away to pray. And in the midst of that, the doctor was gone. My dad was gone. I'm on this metal gurney. I'm by myself. I'm burning up because I felt like there's hot pokers all over my body. I was shot in my face a number of times and in my chest. And all of a sudden, the pain just stopped. And this voice says to me, you're not going to die. I have something for you to do. And the voice very clearly says, you're going to be a chaplain at San Quentin Prison. Now, when I tell people that, they say, oh, no, that's crazy, except for the fact that I told my dad about that. I told my pastor before I ever got to San Quentin. Once I got out of what I was into, I told everyone I could about that voice. I went away to college, Bible college, graduated, went to a service club. A guy tells me, hey, didn't you say you want to be a chaplain? I said, yeah, but I remember telling you. He says, well, there's an opening at San Quentin. And I said, wow, that's pretty weird. I said, okay. Three weeks later, he says, did you apply? I said, nah, not yet. He says, I didn't think so. Here's an application. Fill it out. Fill the application out. Long and short of it is I get a letter back. Dear Reverend Smith, we're sorry that you don't meet the minimal requirements. So now I take this paper, I throw it away, I throw it in the trash, and the Lord says, why don't you call him and ask him, what do you need to do? Once again, it was a test. When I called, there was a silence on the other end, and the lady from the state personnel board says, Reverend Smith, we're sorry, we sent you the wrong letter, you are qualified. So what the Lord has said I would do as a result of the night of me getting shot And what the prophets in the neighborhood said about me ending up at San Quentin, they all met at one place. And that's how I ended up there. So you're 27, I think, if I remember in your book, that you're walking into your first day as a prison chaplain. It sounds like, by all accounts, you were leading in life in a wrong direction where you could have been there on the other side. What was it like? What was going through your mind during those initial days and weeks when you were in there? Well, I knew about crime. I knew what it meant to commit crime, but I didn't know really what it meant to minister in that environment. And people can tell you they do. And the reality is I didn't know what I got myself into other than the fact that I knew the Lord had told me that's where I would be. What I ended up having to do was refocus and readapt because the prison was on lockdown. The day I interviewed, two people were killed. So when I got there for the job, it was just, they were locked down. And whenever they got out of lockdown, something else would happen, a stabbing arm. Or we just had a group of 10 guys get together that had been involved in the prison system with me and that I administered to. And we had lunch on Saturday. We sort of talked about what those times were like. And they taught me how to be a chaplain. They taught me what their needs were and how I could address them and address them in such a way to help them and help their families. Chaplaincy is not just to the inmate. Chaplaincy is to the families. Chaplaincy is to the officers. Chaplaincy is to everyone that is part of that village. In that case, it was called San Quentin. So talk to us a little bit more about that. When you talk about the first year, you're learning, you're soaking all this up, you're trying to understand what it is to minister to somebody then. You understand it's about the community, it's about the village, it's about the whole person, the whole family. But specifically, the guys that you're ministering to in there, did you find people that are without hope and that you were trying to bring hope to them? Or is it directing their hopes? 
Well, I believe that when you get to a place like San Quentin in the 80s, the term was Bastille by the Bay, and that was like the last stop. So in seminary, I learned this term called radical futurelessness. And when I heard it, I said, wow, that's the guys in the prison. So many of them do not believe they have a future. So many of them believe because they have a life sentence, they're going to just die in prison. They see people die around them. And for me, it was asking the Lord, how can I minister to people that don't believe there's a reason to be ministered to? And how do you do that when you go to prison where there's maybe four or five people attending chapel and you know that the Lord has sent you there? And once again, it was, what do you guys need? Well, we like to have groups come in. We like to have people that can come in and minister and share and sing. So I started to look at what were the things that could get them to come in. I worked for the Boy Scouts before I went to work in the prison. And the thing I would tell the kids when I take them camping, because it was all inner city kids, I tell them always, when we got out for a campfire, don't get close to the fire. And always someone would get too close and they start screaming that they're on fire. But, the, you know, they weren't in the fire, but the heat travels out. And I realized that same concept would work in prison, that the heat, the warmth of what the word can really do can travel out and it can touch the guys that are in the people, no matter why they're there. If they're there long enough, I trusted that the heat would touch them. So you're there and you're experiencing this and God's moving, God's teaching you so much. And then something kind of unexpected happens. You re-encounter maybe some of your past. The guy who shot you all those years ago is sitting in a prison cell. What yeah, was he's that experience sitting there. Like? He's on the same tier as my cousin Jerry. And my cousin Jerry was in a prison gang, which is different than a street gang. And this guy's on the same tier as well as some other people that I knew, a guy that was a crime partner. And I remember thinking, wow, here I hadn't seen this guy but three times in my life. I saw him the night he shot me. I saw him in court. I wouldn't testify against him. I wanted him on the street so I could kill him. And now here, the third time he's in San Quentin, and I thought I had it all together. Maybe some of you guys, maybe you remember that, what it feels like, to feel like you finally have peace with God that things are really working well, that you think you've figured it all out. And God says, no, you haven't figured it out yet. I'm going to bring this piece to you and see how you deal with this. And the piece he brought to me was the guy that shot me was in San Quentin. I'm giving out Christmas cards. The time is supposed to really be joyous. And here I am. I give this guy, I look at his cell. I see who he is. And I'm like, wow, here's a guy. And all of a sudden, forgiveness did not mean the same thing to me. I was not at that point because I realized I was still angry. And I learned at that point that you have to confront that thing that's hurt you or harmed you. In this particular case, it was this guy that shot me. And he said, hey, I got shot too. And you know, he's telling me stuff I really didn't need to hear because him getting shot had nothing to do with me being shot. He was just a victim of another circumstance. And so I started to walk away from him. I just, I started crying because I thought this was a test. God, why would you bring me to prison, make me feel like I was okay, that, you know, I'm a chaplain now and everything's well. And I don't long have to look back on that crazy life I had. And yet here this guy is. And I realized I don't forgive him. 
the thing that's really great about relationship with the Lord is he gives you the opportunity to take a walk with him. He gives you the opportunity to travel the journey with him. In this particular case, the journey or the walk was that to the end of the tier, to the end of the cellway. And when I got there, I had to pass back by that guy. And that walk that I had with the Lord represented all the pain that I had endured the days when I could not even forget that I had been shot. It was like an anniversary date for me. I, I would just be in so much pain and anguish. And yet when I got back in front of that guy, I looked at him, I said, I need to thank you because God used you to get to me. And it was that journey that the Lord took me from seeing that guy to the end of the tier, back in front of him, that I believe changed my life. It wasn't the seminary. It wasn't all the books I read. It wasn't all the things that people said about me. It was that walk I took with the Lord from seeing that guy to having to see him again that I actually understood more clearly what it meant to have a relationship. And as I walked off that chair, I went back to my office. I just sat down and I, I just cried because I realized that I wasn't as far as I thought I was, but the key to that whole story is this. The guy wrote the ward a letter saying, you have to get me out of this prison. The chaplain's going to have me killed. And so they called me in. They asked me, do I know the guy? I said, yeah, I just saw him. And I said, but I'm going to let you know something. He's in the safest place he'll ever be in his life. I said, he is safer now than he would ever be. And they looked at me, and they did something very unusual. They got a special transport during the Christmas week and sent him out of San Quentin so I could stay there. I was still on probation. They could have just told me to go home, never come back. And that was it. Yet they transferred him. And I believe that the reason that they transferred him during that time when they don't normally transfer inmates was because of that walk I took with the Lord down that tier where he actually poured into me more than I could ever have poured into me in a seminary or Bible college or anything else. He poured into me his word, and it became flesh. It dwelled in me like never before. Earl, I want to take us to the world of sports because this is the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. But before I get there, I can't move off of the fact that you spent some very meaningful time with people that are in really desperate straits. You spent time with people on death row that are really running face-to-face with their mortality. And that must have been a special invitation to be involved in that when somebody is their most vulnerable What was that like? What was it like to be a death row chaplain? And what truths did you learn about God through it? I'll go back and tell you, you said hope. I learned that I wasn't just a chaplain of hope, but I was a person of finality. Because hope meets finality when there's an execution. And no matter what you feel, Robert Alton Harris was the first person executed. He was on my caseload for years. I walked him into the chamber. I watched as they strapped him in. I prayed with him, and 16 minutes later, they take him out saying he had to stay, and I watched the officers and everyone excited. Well, the reason I say this is you're in a place where everyone is watching you, and Robert Alton Harris did something very interesting. He told the guys that were getting ready to strap him in to execute him, this is nothing personal. I know you're only doing your job. He ministered to them. He told the warden, I hear you love to fish, and I hope that you make it to heaven. You and I can go fishing together. And I listened to him 
in a moment when he was at his lowest, he was trying to figure out a way to make the people around him better. And for me, he told me this story, and then we'll talk about sports, but he says, you know, Earl, if everything you said about this Jesus relationship is true, and I believe it is, there's going to be a white hearse waiting for me outside after they kill me. He said, a white hearse? Well, the story is like this. After they executed Robert, there was such a rush to get out of the chamber. People were cheering. I was the last one there. There was a camera still videoing him as he sat there motionless. He was dead. And when I walked out of the chamber, the first thing I saw was a white hearse. And the reason it was there was because the contractor that they had to remove his body had ran out of hearse that night and he had to borrow one from someone else. And what he borrowed was a white mini ram van that he used for carrying. And so what Robert told me he would see on the other side is what I saw when I walked out that door. And so there is a time when we have to pay a cost for the things we do. And that's the decision God makes. And that's between God and man. I believe that the chaplain's position is you prepare the man to meet the God. And whatever takes place from there is between the man and God. For me, it's faith. For me, it's presenting and sharing what can happen, the realities of what it means to love the Lord, what it means to trust him, what it means to honor him, to sacrifice, to present your body as a living sacrifice. What does that mean in this day and age? And so when you're on death row and you're talking to people about that, it's a difference because those guys, they have dates where they're headed. I mean, most of us, if we're sick, you know, okay, so we're going to get medication or whatever. And a lot of these guys' cases, their ailment is going to lead to death and they know it. They just don't know when, what is going to happen. And for a chaplain, you leave being the man of hope and become more of the man of finality. You have to be honest with them. You have to be truthful with them and you have to lead them in a direction that at the end of the day, you said, I've done the best to make sure they knew who Christ was. I'm impressed by the fact of something you said earlier on, which is you're not really a basketball fan. I mean, you care about the men that you minister to, but it doesn't sound like you're impressed by the star power of a a Clay Thompson or a Steph Curry or somebody like that. You don't care about them as basketball players. You care about them as men. What does it look like to love men regardless of their circumstance? You're on death row or you're an NBA player and everybody wants a piece of you. It just strikes me that they're two very, very different experiences somebody who's death row at the bottom of their life and somebody who's at the top of the game. But how do you see the similarities and differences? Do you see that as being so completely different like I do, or is that all the same to you? Well, I I believe, first of all, you have to remember that. And I tell people, they say, oh, it's too simple. They're all wearing numbers. And if you move outside of the band, outside of the name, and understand the number, the number can represent so many different things. If someone wants a, a number 30 jersey, who you want it, like Steph or number 40 for HB or, you know, you can go through all these numbers, but the guys have numbers. Guys in prison have numbers. For the athletes that we work with, if you are so focused on who they are as athletes and their star power, I believe you failed to adequately present the gospel and they need it as much as anyone. Mm-hmm. They need, whether they're football players, basketball players, or baseball players, and I've done all three sports professionally, 
I can tell you that there's no difference in a man who needs the Lord. There's no difference in a man who comes to grips with the reality that whether I have nothing or I have a lot, absent Christ, you're still empty. And that's what you have to present. What's that look like for a young person who's coming in who doesn't know their brokenness? Presumably people going to prison or have some level of understanding of their brokenness and maybe their need for a savior. How do you deal with a young man that the world has said is better than sliced bread, and yet you know that they're every bit as mortal and in creating the image of God as the person that you once ministered to on death row? Well, the thing that you do that's really different with these guys who are professional athletes is there's some guy that's going to be on the team that was just like them, that mm-hmm. thought they had it all together, and then they had this epiphany. They had this moment when they realize I really don't have it together. I'm really not what I thought I was going to be. And so when that sort of happens, then, Henry, you start to feel like, well, what do you do with a kid like that? You allow the other guys that have been where he is to say, this is how we got through it. The only thing that you can actually do in life is be honest and transparent with yourself. A, the basketball game now is if you're really great, they do everything for you. So you don't really have to work with the trappings of relationship. I tell guys, I just spoke to a rookie class for the NFL. And what I told them is, you know, congratulations, you're professionals now. And I pray one day you'll be a pro. And guy was like, what does that mean? I said, well, when you got an agent, you became professional. You can't go back to college because you've signed with an agent. I said, the question is, how long will it take you to be a pro? And here's what pros do. How long will it take you to grasp that piece of it? Because it's not going to happen overnight. You're going to have some pitfalls. And as you have those, where do you turn? What do you do? And those become the dialogues that you want to have with these kids earlier rather than later. All right. I want to take you back a couple of years ago. Warriors are in one of several playoff and championship runs. What does it look like when you've got a group of young men and do they get a sense that there's something special going on? Are they praising God? Are they seeking him out? What's a dynamic like in a chapel for a team that's going through the playoffs? Well, first of all, basketball is really great because you have both teams together. Mm. So we're in the championships. We're playing the Cavaliers. We have Richard Jefferson and James Jones and some of the other Cavaliers and Mike Miller. So they're there also. So it's not just a warrior player. And so we're both in that room together. But I mean, I've known them so long that it was like, you know, it's just an extended family. So it's family time still. And so it's the faith relationship that we talk about. It's like, (laughs) so we played the Cavaliers all these years. There's Richard Jefferson, but Richard had played for us. So I asked any prayer requests, and one of the guys would say, they look at Richard, they start laughing, humility, because that's always what he prays for. And so even though he wasn't with the Warriors, the Warrior players answered for him because that's relationship. <laughs> and that's the thing that people don't know outside the door about relationship. Yeah, they're going to be very competitive. They're going to go out and they're going to battle and fight each other. Yet there's a space and time when they can put some things aside and focus on one thing, and that's relationships. We found ourselves in this crazy time currently with COVID, but we've gone from one 
challenge in culture and society to another. And you're uniquely equipped to be able to comment on race relations in professional sports in a culture. You're a black man leading and serving other black men and white men and seeing the races come together. I just, we'd love to hear just your thoughts right now. And most importantly, of course, against that backdrop is you're a man of God. And just your observations as you see God at work, or you see the fallenness and the depravity of man, you see professional athletes that are looked up to as cultural change agents and heroes. And just, I'd love to get any perspective you have that you feel that God is speaking to you in a time such as this. Well, I think the biggest perspective, Henry, for us right now that I share with people is I can't tell you how many times I've gone back and read Second Chronicles 7 and 6 leading into 7 and just sort of to understand what was the dynamics? What was the dynamics of a young man following in the footsteps of his father and carrying on a legacy and doing what God had instructed him to do? And at the end of it, in the midst of this cloud, in the midst of everything that was going on, this voice says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And so if you read that, what you have to understand is, I believe today God is saying, this is a time of reckoning. This is a time when people are going to have to humble themselves. People are going to have to pray. The most divided time in the nation is the worship hour. The most divided time in our country, in this nation, is during the worship time. Yet now, you have people that are African-Americans. They're listening to Charleston. They're listening to these other people. And they're not in their church, so they're able to listen and see other things. So I believe that what we saw as a negative, God is in the process of turning around into a positive because people that would normally not even entertain what another minister was saying from a different faith perspective or race are now at least taking the opportunity. I'm at home. Why don't I? At least let me see what's going on. Let me look at it. Now, race relationship has to start with God relationship. And for some reason, we try to move the God out of the relationship. There's been unjust situations in this country, and there still remains unjust situations. And you can say whatever you want to say. You can say, well, it's not true. It's not happening. I'll say this, and you weren't even asking this. I remember being in San Diego with Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed, And I remember having lunch with Eric, and we're getting ready to talk to Cap. And Eric says, I think I want to I be with Cap. He says, I just don't know what that means. And I said, well, why? And he says, because I believe that we should be praying for this country. I said, well, that's what you're saying then. You want to be on your knee. I mean, how do you pray? You pray by kneeling. And the thought of the process has gone so far away from the simple notion that I'm going to kneel and I'm going to pray. And that's sort of where Eric and I were at that. It was a preseason game in San Diego. And there was a lot of controversy around that. Mm-hmm. Yet for me, I said, if that's something you're going to do, do it in a way that you're going to honor the relationship you have and don't just do it for the sake of doing anything. And I believe today I would say the same thing to anyone that would ask me, whatever it is you're saying you're going to do, do it for the sake of the relationship you have. 
and not just for the sake of doing something so you can say you were a part of it. Do it because you've been led by God to do it. And in terms of reconciliation, I believe that athletes are leaders. You gave me the ages of your sons. You told me how old they were when you came out. Now, five years later, you're saying one's 18, one's like, what, 16, or another's 12, and you're sort of talking about these ages, and you're thinking, okay, well, where was Steph and his wife and Clay? They were out saying, what can we do? Give us an opportunity. Give us a voice. Let us know what you're saying. Let us know what you're thinking, because we have a platform to share your thoughts. And at a time in this country when athletes are starting to step up and do that is a time when we start to become closer as a nation. And it's not black athletes. It's not white athletes, Hispanic athletes. It's athletes. It's leaders. It's people that have been viewed as leaders by others for a long time that are now saying, guess what? What can I do to help you? You encourage me when I'm on the court. You encourage me when I'm on the football field. You encourage me when I'm on the baseball field. Now, what can I do to help you? Earl, you're giving us such a great perspective and the impact that you've had on so many players and athletes' lives over the years and preparing them for these conversations. But it seems like chaplaincy is something that's maybe for the players. Is there a point where chaplaincy needs to cross over more into the organizations themselves, the front offices, and have this same kind of care and conversation? I know it's there in some places, but maybe it's not as mainstream as it is in the locker room. Yeah, you know, what I would tell you, Justin, for me, the thing that for chaplaincy, it wasn't just the warriors. I make program and handouts, and I go and I give them to the ushers. I give them to the police officers, the fire department staff that are there, the cheerleaders. I give them to the officials that are going to officiate the game because everyone is involved in this process together. And I believe that's what has to happen. I believe that you cannot isolate and say, only these guys get it. When I did the Giants, I did the Giants for like 12, 13 years. And you do the visiting team, you do the home team, then you do the umpires. I think some of my joy was the umpires because those are the people that you know, really don't understand the trials that they go through. You see all the big time players, but they're influencers. The umpires are influencers. So how do you get people that are influencers to understand the power and the bandwidth that they have. And so for us, if chaplaincy is simply in the building, then at San Quentin, when we started a baseball team and we took gang members from different gangs that would normally not even associate with each other, and we gave them a uniform because Dusty Baker made it possible for us to get a donation and Ned Coletti to get, and Mike Murphy to get uniforms, and now you're the Giants and you go and play this game together and your racial differences, your gang affiliations mean nothing because the game is bigger than all of that. Then I take that same principle with life. You have more things in common than you have differences if you really look at it. Earl, we're incredibly blessed and grateful for the time that you spent with us and guiding us through some of your life experiences, what God's taught you and how he's prepared you for the conversations that you have today. We'd like to finish each episode just rooted in God's truth. And you've already done some of that, but could you point to us maybe a scripture that's come alive to you here this morning or this week or something that God's teaching you and that you could share with our listeners? You know, the word says, be not weary and well-doing for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. And that's in Galatians. And I would say at a time when people are becoming tired, 
depression setting in, do not allow that to hold you hostage. Do not allow that situation to somehow burden you down. My son has a program in Red called the Catchers Farm. He coaches catchers, but it's also his ministry. And he went through a long period when there were no kids to coach, and he was really down about it. And that was a scripture. I said, son, you know, don't allow the situation to rob you of the joy that God is giving you. And I would say the same thing. Be not weary and well-doing. In due season, you're going to reap. This thing is going to turn around. And when it turns around, where will you be? I ask guys in a prison all the time, where will you be when you get where you're going? And I ask the same thing about those of us that have faith. When this thing turns around, are you going to be behind it or in front of it? Are you going to be on the sidelines looking at it? Or are you going to be in the game playing? It's really up to you. Earl, such great wisdom. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for blessing our listeners with your words, yeah. um, for sharing and stewarding what God has entrusted to you in so many experiences. Well, sorry we didn't talk more about sports, guys, but I appreciate the conversation. Thank you guys so much. And hey, this is pretty awesome. Hearing Justin, the work you guys are doing, the ministry God has led you to, I applaud you for it. This is really a work of God. So God bless you and continue to work. Thank you very much for joining us for today's show. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenathlete.org. We're very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven community. Come check out our podcast at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and also faithdriveninvestor.org. We, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you. And it's been very rewarding to see listeners coming to the sites from more than 100 countries. It's very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and that you'll share with others. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. 